Hello, and welcome to Black Magic Treehouse, the show where we review children's horror from the past, the present, and the future. I'm the most important host, Eric, and with me is my co-host. Jose, hi, good to be here. Hopefully you can tell the difference between our voices. I listened to podcasts before where it would literally take me years, where it's like two guy hosts, and I'm like, years later, I'm like, I think this one's Tyler and this one's David, but I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, it would would get really bad if uh, we weren't able to distinguish our own names. Yeah, as you can tell, so this is our first episode, for those of you who are just tuning in and couldn't (laughs) tell. Uh, from the way things have been going so far. We do hope that things Uh-oh. will start out later on. But uh, we are excited to be here all the way up in this lonely, desolate treehouse of ours. Just like Jack and Sure Andy. is cold up here. Yeah. You hear all those those Foley effects in the background? Did you like that intro? I worked like 20 minutes on it. I hope you did. Do, do we have an intro with we Foley effects? do. We do, actually. It's, uh, oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's a music track from the YouTube audio library. So we only source our music in the most sustainable way possible so that we're not, you know, depleting the, uh, you know, the audio tracks that you find out there in the wild. We, we hunt sustainably. So, so we got it from there. And it has a little bit of layer of uh, some Foley effects. We got some howling wind. And uh, towards mm-hmm. the end there, you hear some creaking uh of a of a wooden door or a hatch being opened and then it closes shut and it locks because you the listener are our prisoner right now for the next 30 ish 40 ish minutes uh while we wax rhapsodic about uh, all these weird creepy things that we've still obsessed over to this day as 30 plus year olds so that's what you heard on the way in what are we going to hear from this point now well i guess what i'll do is i'll say uh we like to narrate these books to each other one of us will have read a particular children's horror piece of media although sometimes we might do i don't know movies or tv shows or anything relevant maybe we'll even do a creepy pasta episode to be relevant I still think of that as something that's for the kids, even though I think that's been around and popular for like 10 years now. But the normal uh, format of the show is going to be one of us relating campfire style one of these particular books to the other so that we can then assess them, rate them, talk about how good or bad they are. So I think that covers the format, which we won't explain every episode. Before we get into the book at hand, is there anything that you have experienced within the past week? Any media you've consumed, podcasts you listen to, movies you've seen, books you've read that are unrelated that you would like to uh, speak about for a couple minutes? Sure. Well, I got to say, it's not totally unrelated to uh, the, the genre that we're dealing with here. Most of the media that I consume is usually creepy in flavor and um i'm gonna go with something that i actually just watched earlier this evening um i didn't expect that to happen uh i'm a father of three so the time that i get to watch that kind of stuff or even read it is pretty limited uh but as it just so happens uh my my daughter my oldest child was at a sleepover at grandma's house my wife was visiting a friend and it was just me and uh, my two sons, who are still, 
uh, toddlers. So whatever I put on the TV goes in those cases. But of course, I still try to err on the side of caution and not put anything too uh, traumatic on. Not that I necessarily even like that kind of stuff um, as far as the genre is concerned. So I plucked out from my DVD case a Christmas present from one of my friends. Uh, it was very, very nice and on on the nose. It, it's, it happens sometimes that people get you gifts and it's like, oh, thank you, another copy of this movie or this type of movie that I don't really like. But it's nice that they at least got kind of within the field of interest. Um, but that was not the case here. It was right on the nose. They got me the first of the Scream Factory Vincent Price collections on Blu-ray, um, which, yeah, I was very, very nicely surprised by. I was so honored by that. So I plucked that out, and we watched The Fall of the House of Usher, which I believe was the first in the Roger Corman, Edgar Allan Poe adaptations uh, that Vincent Price starred in. And Follow the House of Usher, and I guess you could say this of a lot of the, if not all, of the Poe Corman or the Corman Poe, whatever your predilection is, uh, of these movies. Those are, like Follow the House of Usher, let me put it this way. It was a movie that I could not really recall until towards the end whether or not I had seen it before. Because it's one of those movies that is fairly generic in flavor and especially if you're a fan of this stuff it's one of those movies that you've read about and seen clips from to the point that you start questioning have i actually already seen this movie uh, the answer in my case was no i had not actually seen it like if you've seen any of those corman ones they all use the same sets the same props the same costumes so exactly. it's hard to keep keep them all straight yeah exactly right and i would definitely couch that movie and, and all the other movies from the psycho and uh, psycho who uh cycle uh in this uh kind of term that i've i don't, I don't want to go so far as to say that i invented because in this day and age nobody has invented anything nothing is original within the last few years i've talked about this thing um called cozy horror um and the idea that hmm, you know it may be in perhaps the same way that extreme horror is if not necessarily a subgenre unto itself, it's kind of a niche. Uh, maybe cozy horror could also be a niche of the genre as well. And um, I would definitely put something like Follow the House of Usher under that umbrella, just because even at the time it was released, which I think was 1961, that was a horror movie that was not making anybody feel uncomfortable. Yeah, that was not something that was coming out to upset sensibilities. And, of course, the majority of horror films that had kind of come out up until that point really weren't of that nature, you know, um, for the most part. Uh, like 1960, I think, was the year that one came out or thereabouts. Okay. So, of course, then what was the other, you know, what was another movie that came out that same year? Psycho, which in some ways kind of heralded, you know, the approach of slightly more upsetting forms of horror as well as kind of hearkening back to the gothic side you know as far as the inclusion of the uh, you know the Bates house and some of the other trappings I actually talk about that in um, in an essay I wrote about this idea of cozy horror um, but I love that kind of stuff you know that's it's not 
like I said, out to upset your sensibilities. It's very comforting just to watch, especially when uh, movies of that sort are period pieces and that they're taking place in some kind of um, indiscernible time. It's the past, but it's hard to pin necessarily how far into the past it is, but it's got the rambling houses and the the pretty costumes. Uh, There is just an abundance of red candles in that movie. It's pretty ridiculous. It looks like, you know, um, I don't know, there was just like an overstock of birthday candles from somebody's (laughs) color-coded party uh, from a few years before, and they they were still working through them. Just every candle you see in that movie is a red candle, and they really stick out with that uh, vibrant technicolor that the movie was shot in. But yeah, uh, really, really pleasurable experience. So if you're in the mood to just kind of get the warm, fuzzy feelings, you can't go wrong with those Corman Poe or Poe Corman films. Yeah. And uh, do you remember which other ones you've seen? Or is that also all kind of a blur? I do remember the other ones. Uh, the Fall of the House of Usher is tough because there's really n- not too much to market. Uh, distinct from any of the other ones. I could see Fall of the House of Usher getting confused for Pit and the Pendulum, uh, which I mm-hmm. I have seen. But then you have the Pendulum to kind of distinguish that movie from the other ones. Fall of the House of Usher, especially with it being the first one, it's the most vanilla. Um, in a sense, it's kind of a boring movie. There isn't really much that happens. There's only four people in the cast, So it really feels like, you know, this kind of stage bound thing. There's nothing too operatic about it or flamboyant uh, about it to kind of say, oh, yeah, that's the one with the because all the elements that are in that movie kind of crop up in the other ones. Um, But I just recently saw and it's funny, I named this one first because it's not a a Poe adaptation, but I fairly recently watched The Haunted Palace which has the name of a Poe piece, but it is, of course, an adaptation of uh, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft. Um, Corman wanted to make a a Lovecraft adaptation, and the studio said, yeah, sure, whatever. But then kind of at the last minute, they're like, well, you know, you're kind of known for these Poe adaptations, so we're going to give it... uh, I saw that one recently, a couple of years back, for the October Horror Movie Challenge. That was the first time I saw... Mask of the Red Death, uh, which I remember as enjoying quite a bit. A lot of folks seem to say that that's probably the best out of the whole Corman Poe lot. But I've seen that. I've seen Premature Burial, which is also kind of a, van- of a vanilla one. And it has Ray Milland in the starring mm-hmm. role as opposed to Vincent Price. So kind of even more reason, I guess, to fall asleep during that one. <laughs> um what were the other ones? Pin in the Pendulum. Pretty sure I've seen one. Uh, there was a Tomb of Lygia. Was I think the last one that they made. Yeah, and, and I think I've seen that one. Um, that one probably boasts the best Vincent Price look, <laughs> I think. Just um, oh yeah, top hat and shades. It's very iconic. In fact, I think um, I remember seeing on the blog Too Much Horror Fiction, uh, Will, the the author of the site posted the cover to a story collection of R. Chetwin Hayes, which is the British author that the film um, The Amicus Anthology from Beyond the Grave is based on his stories. But one of his story collections 
uh, has Vincent Price's face as his character from Tomb of Legia on it, uh, just just hanging out. You know, it's like amidst the sea of other faces, like, ooh, these are all the ghoulish characters you're going to meet in this book. And one of them is totally Vincent Price from that movie. So, you know, I guess that was before lawsuits were a thing. Yeah, what I remember about what you were saying about House of Usher being so vanilla is um, back in the day when I was really into uh, director commentaries, I remember listening to Roger Corman's for that movie. And he was saying that the only way, because that was the first Poe adaptation they did, and um, AIP, American International uh, Pictures, was known at that point for like mon- like literal monster movies, like, uh, I don't know, Horror on Party Beach so when he was pitching this movie, Corman, they were asking, like, well, where's the monster? And he said, um, well, uh, the, the house is the monster. So then they had to put in this line of Vincent Price in the movie where he's like saying he has some kind of line. It's like the house itself is a monster. I do remember that. Yeah. And it's funny. I, I just thought that was, oh, a poetic license. They're kind of taking in a new direction, you know, to kind of zhuzh up the uh, the original narrative a bit so that maybe it reads as a bit more cinematic the idea that oh it's a malevolent house and it's doing all these creaky crazy things like popping in the fireplace and there's a scene where uh, a a cauldron full of gruel almost falls on mark damon and really kind of a non-threatening way <laughs> it's like oh it's a bowl full of quaking oats sorry not sorry I'm sorry, listeners. I, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that was the root cause of um, that whole theme in the movie, though. That's interesting. Yeah, and one final question, and then we can move on. Is uh, Barbara Steele the woman in that one, or is she only in Pit and the Pendulum? No, she's only in Pit and the Pendulum. Um, the actress in Fall of the House of Usher is somebody whose name was not familiar to me. Um, I'm sorry. Okay, so she kind of like uh pale with black hair though at least yeah yeah so you're you're on the mark in that regard and i will say i i I apologize actress from fall the house of usher um it's really cute because she she pulls off a pretty convincing mad woman face at the end uh after she breaks out of her her casket her premature casket uh she does a good mad woman face not on the same par as barbara Steele, because i mean you know the eyes do most of the acting in that case but um it's really cute because she's like i don't know five 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 six you know just uh, maybe an inch or two shorter than me and you see her lunge at vincent price to strangle him and you can practically see her reaching up on her tippy toes just to grab him around the neck (laughs) kind of you know he's leaning back but he's also leaning down so that she can grab his it's really precious it's kind of like you know watching a, a kid and try to i don't know bat around a, a rottweiler or something it's 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 cute and an unintentional way i am beating myself up because i forgot to say that we have a website and an email address oh my god uh, if anybody wants to reach out to us we're at blackmagictreehouse.com and our email address is one that I don't know yet. This stuff will become more organic in time. You know how it is when you're starting a podcast. Um, but in, at any rate, if you feel so moved to reach out to us, and we truly would love to hear from you, if you've got books of this type from this uh, this day and age that we're recounting here on the show, we would love to hear 
uh, your thoughts, whether it's thoughts on what we're talking about in the episode. Yeah, whack my microphone. Like I said, we're going to get better at this, folks. Uh, But if you also have just a random reminiscence about uh, some kind of creepy, weird book that you encountered back in the day, either through the book fair or your school library, please, please, please do reach out to us. Uh, Even if it's like a question, like I just have this passage or the scene that's stuck in my head and I don't know what it goes to because we'd love to air those during the podcast too. see if any of our listeners may be able to help uh, nail down what those reminiscences of yours are. Um, But the email address where you can reach us is the name of the podcast, Black Magic Treehouse, all one word, just the way the show title is spelled, Black Magic Treehouse, pod, P-O-D, at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. And uh, I think I'm probably going to have Jose be the one who checks that. So if anybody wants to complain about me, go ahead. Yeah, I'll be sure to read those aloud on the show uh, so that Eric oh, doesn't well. So. <laughs> okay, well, never mind. Well, I'll, I'll read um, I'll read mine out too. <laughs> I hope we don't only get emails from people who just don't like the show. That was bummer. But then again, that is the internet. Yeah, that is the internet. I don't know though. I feel like you gotta really be animated. I feel like we won't get those until we're relatively popular, which may never happen. But I feel like it's not until you get relatively popular that people feel the need to complain. It's like, hey, don't get too big for your britches there. I got I have a list of complaints that I would like to share with you right now in this very eloquent email written in all caps. Um, So I I don't think we have to worry about that for now. Once we get a little bit of notoriety, though, they'll start coming in by the bucket full, I'm sure. All right, Jose. So we decided for our first episode, even though we are not going to be a Goosebumps exclusive podcast, there are already enough of those out there. We did want to start out by paying tribute to the titan of... uh, Titan would be better if I was going to say teen, and I'm not. Titan of tot horror. Uh, Mr. R. L. Stein himself, Robert Lawrence. So I have read myself a book in the series that I wanted, because I know you did a YouTube video about recounting all the Goosebumps books from memory. So I was curious if I were to give you the number of this particular title, if you would be able to remember which one it is in the OG series. I love I love this, by the way, Eric and I just kind of happened upon this idea, totally unspoken to each other, that uh, in picking the books or the subject for each episode, that we would keep it a secret. We did not express that to each other in any way, but that's what the roles we fell into. And I'm really excited by that because I love surprises. So, yes, go ahead. I will see if I can nail it down just by the number. It's early on in the series, you can tell, because when you look at the spine, Goosebumps is still written in a normal font, not in the Goosebumps font that they would adopt later on. And it is number five. Number five. Okay, I will be totally transparent. Uh, I have a shelf of Goosebumps. The shelf of my Goosebumps books is literally just to the left of me, right over my computer. I am not looking at it, though. I know you can't tell that on the podcast, but I'm holding my hand up. And to be honest, that early in the series, I think I could probably nail it down. Number one is Welcome to Dead House. Number two, Stay Out of the Basement. Number three, Monster Blood. Number four, Say Cheese and Die. That brings us to number five, which is, oh, man, Curse of <laughs> Tomb. <laughs> oh, yeah, you got it, you got it. What a neat party trick you can do. 
I know. I have so many friends. I've influenced so many people and won so many friends with that. It's amazing. So uh, let's talk about the cover here by the inimitable Tim Jacobus. I don't know if anybody has redone. I know they re-released some of them with different covers. I have the uh, original one here, and I would say that it has a slightly cartoonish in that Jacobus style, but more realistic than his later titles, Mm -hmm. Mummy. I mean, that's basically the cover. It's got a mummy on it (laughs) with glowing red eyes. Um, But I am impressed by the level of detail in the bandages. Like, you can see, like, the fraying at the edges. Uh, So it's not just, like, medical tape looking. It actually looks like linen bandages like you would have in in an actual mummy. Not aged at all. Because I guess maybe it would have been too scary to make it look like they actually look with their skin poking through and everything. But he's got glowing red eye, glowing red eyes. He's seemingly standing up against a tomb wall. And the tagline is, what will wake the dead? I do really now, like that tagline. I mentioned it in my YouTube video that it kind of has a, a little bit of a sing-song quality to it. And it's also really portentous where most... Most but not all of the Goosebump taglines on the front cover are kind of jokey. Uh, I like how serious that one is. Yeah, and um, I don't know if this changes as the series goes on, but here's my memory of Goosebumps, because apart from this book, I haven't read any of them in, uh, I don't know, 25, 30 years. Well, not 30 years. I'm not that old. but Well, I chose this particular one because I remembered basically nothing about it. I think because when they made a TV episode, they did the uh, sequel, right. which is, I don't know, Return of the Mummy or whatever it was called. Uh, yeah, it was just kind of difficult to remember. So that's why I wanted to reread it, because it has a classic. I always liked the Goosebumps books the most that had a universal style monster, as opposed to like, oh, no, this ooze is making me stupid or whatever. Uh, that was a Ghost of Fear Street. I'm cheating a little bit by saying that, but. Um, so do you want to give a quick summation of, do you remember anything about this book? Uh, so like Eric alluded to, I did, uh, two YouTube videos about a year back now. Yeah. A year ago. Um, my original intention was to blow through the original 62 Goosebumps books and just kind of recount each one by memory, uh, what I recalled of each one. Uh, so what I thought of this book is somewhat fresh in my memory because I did that thing about a year ago. But I remember both Mummy books uh, from this original 62, this one in Return of the Mummy, being really, really boring. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to the point of de- depressing level of, of boring I, I thought that there, from what I remembered, that there was not enough mummy action when the mummy was there. It didn't do enough. Like, it didn't shuffle along like Lon Chaney in the later mummy sequels as Karis, you know, and strangling people and, you know, wrestling them or throwing them through windows like Christopher Lee in the Hammer films. Um, mm-hmm. I just remember it being like mostly stupid subpar indiana jones booby traps and treasure hunting yeah i mean you're not too far off (laughs) there really is not much of a mummy until the last 30 pages or so anyway let me go ahead and read the teaser on the back oh i love it yeah 
what do you call the second is it just called another tagline there's always the little um phrase on the back above the actual teaser yeah i don't even remember what i referred to if if i did refer to it by name in those videos um yeah i don't know um yeah tagline number two (laughs) i guess as good as tagline number two rear tagline something dead has been here Mm. gabe just got lost in a pyramid (laughs) one minute his crazy cousin oh i also don't know how to say the girl's name out loud s-a-r-i my instinct was to say sorry (laughs) what would you say uh i would say sorry and then i would also say sorry if that's wrong one minute his crazy cousin sorry was right ahead of him in the pyramid tunnel the next minute she disappeared but gabe isn't alone someone else is in the pyramid too someone or something gabe doesn't believe in the curse of the mummy's tomb but that doesn't mean that the curse isn't real does it (laughs) Uh, that's kind of a weak instance of does it because it's saying that the curse is real like usually when you say does it it would be like ah that stuff's all a bunch of hooey isn't it it just kind of feels like the opposite use of does it for me but anyway the way you read it and your summation of that back cover copy is pretty much almost exactly what I said in my video. I also I love the way you did in a pyramid because I said it that exact same way after the ellipses in a pyramid. I think it was this book. And also I got really frustrated with that question that that annoying form of questioning. Is it or isn't it? It was on my yeah. No, half a do- no, not half a dozen. Probably like a dozen Goosebumps books, if not like fifty percent of them. I got. I remember getting really angry at the one that's on the back of the Werewolf of Fever Swamp because <laughs> it basically negates itself in the same way that you said. It's like, don't do that to me, Goosebumps. Okay, well, I guess I'll get into my notes here. Yeah. My four pages of notes. Oh boy. Goosebumps number five: The Curse of the Mummy's Tomb. All right, I'll give you the first line of this uh, novel. I saw the Great Pyramid and got thirsty. That's right. <laughs> That's a hooker if I've ever heard one. So Gabe is 12, and his family, he's there with his mom and his dad. They are visiting Egypt for over Christmas vacation. Gabe notes that he is surprised that there are tourists there. Uh I will say I kind of get that because my best trip to Disney World ever was during uh, Christmas vacation, which you would expect to be crowded, but there was like nobody there. So we got through all the lines in like five minutes. <clears throat> and if you remember Goosebumps book, if you read this, you know, R.L. Stein always does this thing where he gives any supporting character just like one character trait. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, especially bad with the parents because they're usually only there for like one page or one line. And dad actually has two character traits. One is that he always has his nose in a guidebook. And also he is sensitive about his weight. So Gabe makes a couple of fat jokes about his dad. Yeah, I feel like I've, I've heard uh, within, you know, re- recent years, people's reassessments of, of Goosebump books. I feel like there's a somewhat frightening abundance of fat jokes, especially <laughs> I know in some of the Living Dummy books, Slabby likes to resort to fat jokes an awful lot. There's, of course, the horrific turn of events from the Say Cheese and Die sequel. 
Yeah, fortunately, Ryan Gosling got out of that uh, sequel episode, so he doesn't have to look back on the problematic heritage of that. Speaking of heritage, Gabe and his parents are both of Egyptian heritage, uh, because both sets of grandparents were told emigrated to the U.S. from Egypt in around 1930. I thought that was interesting, because I feel like usually you just kind of expect Goosebumps characters to be white. I wrote in my notes, Gabe shares something in common with Peter Parker and orange bags of rice, Uncle Ben. His, his Uncle Ben is a famous archaeologist, we find out. Uh, so Gabe is really thirsty. He's there with his parents. We find out that his parents sell refrigerate, refrigeration equipment. That's why they are in Egypt is because they're there on a business trip that just sort of happens to also be a vacation. Dad has, we are told, a million terrible... Actually, I can't remember if it's the dad who has a million bad jokes or Uncle Ben who has a million bad jokes, but everybody makes bad jokes. And I wrote down this one because I honestly don't get it. Do you know how you get down from a camel? You don't get down from a camel. You get down from a duck. Do you get that? (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah, I have no idea what that means. I'm guessing it has something to do with the act of ducking as a verb but i i don't know what it means to get down from a duck so anyway and like you said yes there is very early on an indiana jones reference because Mm. how can you did i say that uncle ben was a famous he's quoted as being a famous archaeologist which uh i would i would make fun of the idea that an archaeologist can be famous but also i think before social media if you had any family member who had any kind of tangential relationship to uh, being known at all, like if somebody is on the news in your family, you're like, oh, they're famous. So I feel like that tracks with 12-year-old mentality is to say my Uncle Ben is famous because he was in National Geographic one time. So in addition to being whiny because he's thirsty, Gabe is also whiny because he would rather be playing on his Game Boy than looking at the Nile. This is when they're uh, driving back to their hotel. Oh, there's also a note that Egypt has classic Coke, not the other kind, which I also didn't understand what that meant. I don't know what the other kind is. I was curious how much research R.L. Stein did for this book or if he's ever even been to Egypt. I would assume he has because he's rich, but like, why wouldn't you go? But um, I've heard that Coke is sweeter in every country except America because we use corn syrup here and other countries still use sugar hmm i did not know that yeah that's a fun little tidbit but uh, there's no reference to that about coke being sweeter he says it just tastes like classic coke so uh, maybe that's what it's referring to so anyway his parents get called away on a sudden business trip to alexandria to meet with a very important refrigerator needing client and they ask him whether he wants to go does gabe want to go with them or does he want to stay here with his uncle ben and Gabe says, I didn't have to think about it for more than one eighteenth of a second. And I also wrote that one down because, again, it's like I'd like to make fun of that. But also, I feel like there's that age when you first learn about fractions and you feel like you need to get like extremely specific about things because that feels more clever than saying like one second. So I don't know, you know, good bit of writing from R.L. Stein. I'll give it to him. Yeah, I think it tracks, like you said, because I laughed because I thought, oh, God, how goofy is that? But then I started the laughing kind of trailed off because I realized, oh, my God, I would definitely have said that as a 12 year old. So, look, sometimes Arlstein's a good writer. I don't know what to tell you. 
so anyway, the thing that does give him pause for that one eighteenth of a second is the fact that Uncle Ben's daughter is sorry, the cousin that we've already established from the teaser. We find out that she is also 12, stuck up, pretty and knows it, smart, taller than Gabe, better at video games, the most competitive person he knows. She beats him at everything and lords it over him. And then at this point, R.L. Stein's super check, uh, sorry, name checks Super Mario Land. I didn't know if that was actually a video game or not, so I Googled it, thinking he had just thought of Super Mario World and got it wrong. But Super Mario Land is, in fact, a video game. It was a launch title for the Game Boy. So you give R.L. Stein a point, but then you immediately have to take it away because Stein then says that it's a game for Super Nintendo, even though we've already established that Gabe has a Game Boy. So Because that's Gabe's excuse for why Sari always beats him at Super Mario Land is because she owns a Super Nintendo and I don't. This is um, an amount of name dropping, brand name dropping, that I don't recall being a, a prevalent theme in other Goosebumps books. I don't, I, I don't, I feel yeah, there's like a lot of product placement. Yeah, there was not that kind of connection to our reality in, in the other books, but maybe, who knows, maybe uh, other books reference Mortal Kombat and I just don't remember that. Yeah, I rem- I feel like I remember a lot of Coke references. Like, <clears throat> there's a lot of annoying younger siblings, like, putting their hands around their sibling's neck and their hands are cold and clammy, like, as a joke. And then they're like, ah, why are your hands so cold? Oh, because I just got a Coke out of the fridge or whatever. Fridge that was sold to us by Gabe's parents. So they leave. Mom squeezes Gabe's ears in farewell because she thinks he likes that. I don't know why a parent would think... Uh, you're a parent. Do you squeeze your <laughs> children's ears? Uh, I punch them in the face because they seem to like that. But no, I never would squeeze their ear. That's that's just weird. So they, Gabe decides to stay. They leave him in the hotel room by himself saying, uh, Uncle Ben's on his way. You should be fine for the next hour. And this is where we establish that Gabe has a mummy hand. And um, there's some clumsy writing here because... You would think that because Gabe is Egyptian, R.L. Stein would establish that so he could then establish that this mummy hand was like passed down through the generations or something. But instead, it turns out that Gabe just bought this at a random garage sale. And the person who sold it to him said that it was called a summoner. And I I had a different memory. I don't know if this is from the TV show. I thought that he bought it at like a like a tourist trap kind of place. And then it turned out to be a real thing. But maybe I'm conflating that with a different story. And just as we find out that he basically uses this mummy hand as what we would now call a, what is it, like a fidget spinner or whatever, like when he's <laughs> nervous. Um, yeah. We established that. And then suddenly the door gets kicked open and a mummy bursts into the hotel room. Oh, no. What are the End chances? of chapter two. Uh, do you want to guess? Obviously... It's possibly too early for there to be an actual mummy in this book. Do you want to guess who's behind this? Is this our friend? Sorry. Uh, sort of. It's Uncle Ben. Oh, never he, <laughs> Even though Gabe was sitting <laughs> alone in a hotel room, gradually freaking out because his parents were gone, Uncle Ben apparently took the time to not just like slide on a mummy costume from Party City. He actually wrapped himself completely up in bandages and walked through the entire hotel like this as a practical joke. 
And uh, everybody thinks it's hilarious. Yep. And Can then Sarai sticks in her head around the doorway and laughs at Gabe. And Gabe's like, oh, I don't know. You would have been scared, too. Um, but here's some exposition. They found another burial chamber in the pyramid where Uncle Ben is working with his excavation team. Oh, and I made a note here because there was a good payoff, which, again, I don't usually expect from R.L. Stein. Um, Uncle Ben is talking about his the pyramid that they're working in, and he offhandedly asks, do you know how wide the base of the pyramid is? And Gabe knows the answer, which is, I think it's like 13 acres or something, because it was <clears throat> one of the handy facts that his father was spouting from the guidebooks earlier. And then they suspect the chamber is for the pharaoh Khufu, K-H-U-F-U. And I go- another one that I Googled because I was like, is that just a made-up Egyptian name? But uh, it was a real pharaoh. So this is a, presumably takes place in an actual pyramid. Well, and he was Khufu for Cocoa Puffs. Oh, boy. <laughs> As they enter the pyramid, Gabe's left sneaker comes untied, and it's established that this happens all the time. I thought that was a good bit of verisimilitude because it is always my right sneaker that comes untied, not both of them. And there are some superstitious workers who have warned Uncle Ben about a curse. He explains this to them as they're walking through all the various chambers. Nothing new there. Uh, He doesn't even specify what the curse is. I guess just that it's a bad thing to be doing what they're doing. So then they climb down a rope ladder to get to the lower chamber. Another cliffhanger, Gabe, grabs onto the ladder, and it's coarse. He expected it to be smooth, and he's like, ow, let go, fall. Sorry, single-handedly, like, grabs him and keeps him from falling. This, I mean, she is taller than him, so I guess it's not that unrealistic. And then we get to hear one of Uncle Ben's. I was disappointed we didn't get more mummy jokes in this book, honestly. I wrote down every one that we got. Uh, Why didn't the mummy have any hobbies? Why? He was too wrapped up in his work. Uh, so then we go to the main burial chamber where all the workers are digging, and we meet Ahmed from, quote, the university. Ahmed is Egyptian, which Gabe, Gabe makes a point of saying Ahmed is Egyptian, even though we know that Gabe is Egyptian, so I don't know that he would point it out like it's a big deal, but whatever. It's a... And... So Ahmed is the guy who keeps warning everybody about this curse. Nobody listens to him because they think he's just a superstitious native. And Sari then manipulates Gabe into walking away from Uncle Ben, even though he warned them explicitly. Hey, there's like a hundred thousand tunnels in this pyramid. You'll get lost. Um, But all she has to do is call him chicken. And he starts following her away from Uncle Ben while he's distracted by, uh, I think, like a pile of rocks or something that one of the workers is like. Now, they do that thing where it's like, now look at the interesting thing on these rocks. And then Uncle Ben's just like, ah, hmm, yes, that is quite interesting. And we never find out anything specific about what might be interesting about these rocks. So needless to say, Gabe's shoe comes untied again. He bends down to tie it. (laughs) I think this might be the one idea that R.L. Stein had for this entire book is like, what if your shoe got untied and then the person who was in front of you walked away, didn't realize that you were stopping to tie your shoe? Because that happens maybe four times in this book. So there's a flashback to the time when he led Sari to a haunted house when she was visiting his neighborhood. Uh, And they were walking through this abandoned house and he was like 
taking a lot of pleasure in the fact that she seemed to be very scared. But then it turns out she was just putting it on because she disappeared and Gabe ran around throughout the house freaking out, thinking he'd lost his cousin or that she was got murdered or something. And he runs home through the rain only to find her already sitting at the kitchen table, calmly eating a slice of chocolate cake. Classic. That's the kind of prankster sorry is. Family of pranksters by the sound of it. Sorry, not sorry. I'm going to do another pun on that, even though you did it already. Gabe wanders around by himself. He finds a small chamber and discovers what R.L. Stein keeps calling a mummy case. I'm guessing he means sarcophagus, but he never, ever uses that word. Maybe he thought it was too big of a word for his target audience. Um, he's wondering if Uncle Ben and his team have discovered this yet when the lid suddenly starts to creak open and a pair of eyes stare at him from inside. So, Jose, do you want to take a guess as to uh, what's going on here? Is it genuinely supernatural yet? The fact that you're asking must mean that it's not. And the fact that you mentioned that the mummy <laughs> until the last 30 pages. Although, I got to say, even with those two facts in mind, I'm kind of stumped. Oh, no, wait a minute. Yeah, that's right. He lost track of sorry. So this one is sorry. You got it. Mm-hmm. Sorry, shut herself inside this mummy. Even though there's hundreds of passages where Gabe might have gone down a different route. He somehow wound up in the same room where she was hiding in a coffin. And there's a, (laughs) I don't know if this happens in any other books, but there's a funny dialogue exchange here that predicts a future title of the Goosebumps series where Gabe says to Sari, you wouldn't like it if I scared you. And Sari replies, you couldn't scare me, which is almost a title of another Goosebumps book. And we're of course referring to, how to kill a monster yep that's why i said almost uh so then uncle ben bursts in and yells at them for wandering off uh i did think it was nice that like typically in a goosebumps book the sorry is basically playing the role of the annoying sibling in this one because gabe is an only child and i remember like i felt like in certain goosebumps books at this moment sorry like that sibling would try to foist all the blame on Gabe and be like uh he made me walk away well she wouldn't call him uncle ben dad he made me walk (laughs) away it's all his fault and then dad uncle ben would be like gabe i trusted you how could you do this but instead sorry actually owns up to it and uh says like hey i just wanted to show him this chamber i found the other day so we cut to the next day when they're eating breakfast and here's some more product placement it's frosted flakes with Tony the Tiger speaking in Arabic. Wow, really going for an R.L. Stein. <laughs> steep enough in that verisimilitude. Uh, so we find out here that two of Uncle Ben's workers have come down with a mysterious illness. Is it the curse? So he's like, all right, bye, kids. And he leaves them in the hotel room. I mean, in fairness, that did go all right the first time. So I guess he wouldn't have any reason to think there's something weird going on. Uh, And Sari decides that they can walk to the Cairo Museum because it's not like they're babies. I asked my girlfriend this because this happens all the time in books or shows about like preteens is they always use baby as like a derogatory, like something is for babies or like you're a baby because you do this thing. And I don't remember that being in the vernacular when I was that age. Do you? I remember one specific moment from my uh, elementary school years, kind of to that point where the teacher was turning on the TV to show us a video. And this seems strange to me. 
and I it could be misremembering it, but it was like regular TV that had access to some cable channels, which seems weird for school TV to do even back then, but who knows? Um, but somehow, some way, in the midst of trying to get it to the right channel or whatever to you know get uh, to have a video set up, Barney flashed for all of three seconds. And and this must have been, you know, I want to say second grade, third grade tops. But even at that age, Barney flashed on the TV and the whole class in unison. Ew. <laughs> like we were just united in this idea that, oh, you're trying to make us watch this baby show. We're not babies. We're into cool things like goosebumps and pogs. We don't need this trash anymore. We're so, uh, you know, we're so grown and sophisticated now. So, uh, I didn't realize Pogs were still a, a fad, because you're, what, like three years younger than me? I kind of thought they were, like, over and done in, like, a year. So, it's well, surprising to me. Around. They stuck around for a little bit. I, I recall, not not too far into my elementary school years, but you know, those first few years, uh, I, re- I recall seeing them out and about. Goosebumps in particular. <laughs> so, uh, Gabe decides to leave a note for Uncle Ben, and Sorry makes fun of him. Um, and calls him Gaby. Maybe she calls him, you know, they missed an opportunity. She could have called him uh, Gaby the baby, but she doesn't. Um, And she keeps repeating it just to be annoying. I will say, I really like their relationship. Again, it's like, it's the kind of annoying that feels like, like a lot of these characters exist solely to make the main character's life miserable. And there's never any like camaraderie or any kind of like, we love each other, even though we drive each other crazy. This kind of feels like they they love each other, but they drive each other crazy anyway. And if they weren't related, I would want them to hook up. <laughs> is that sick? Is that sick of me to say about 12-year-olds? Sorry. Well, uh, thanks for joining us, folks. This is the first <laughs> episode of Black Magic Treehouse. Sorry for creeping you out. Uh, but no, no, I actually did totally get what you're saying because... The the dynamic that they have, um, Eric and I have known each other for a while, and uh, we've um, kind of collaborated on other projects in the past. The the way you're describing their dynamic kind of reminds me of the dynamic that some characters we've written have had, where it's that um, playful banterish, uh, kind of very much like a Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn thing going on. Where it's like they're telling each other how sick they are of each other and they're being really colorful and almost kind of mean about it. But then that's kind of the the whole spice of their relationship. So, I don't know. I get what you're saying. And just to clarify, when I said they should hook up, I didn't mean... I know people use that term as a sex thing. I just meant, like, I would want them to, in, you know, two or three years discover like hmm, maybe i have more than just platonic feelings for this person and then they would like kiss before they run off to catch the bus or something and there's another reference to a mummy costume being literally just being wrapped in bandages which i i was never a mummy as a kid so i don't remember that but that just seems like more trouble than it's worth but we find out that gabe went as a mummy um two years ago and his bandages completely unraveled in front of all his friends and it was really embarrassing uh, so they go to the museum and they're looking at the mummy display and Gabe decides to torment Sari by describing how they made mummies, 
which is one of those things like the thing about how they stick a poke up poker up your nose and like scramble your brains around i feel like that was like in so much media that i read as a kid was like you know true stuff novels like this like it seems like i think a lot of adults were like this is the perfect level of like humorously gross to entertain children yeah because it's you know at first it kind of broaches the same territory as the gross out humor of somebody picking their nose but taken to a really icky an ickier level (laughs) all the way up to their brain i'd say i prefer it to nose picking humor i was never into that kind of stuff so they are entertaining themselves at the mummy exhibit and then guess who should walk into this exhibit But our friend from the university, Ahmed. Ahmed. I have to ask you this question about Ahmed before we go any further. When I did the video, I could not get the image out of my head, and this was probably ingrained by the movies. Does he wear a fez? I don't recall it being mentioned. He does have a ponytail, which I made note of. But I don't think he's described as wearing a fez. I might have glossed over it if he does. Uh, now that was probably just left reheated leftovers in my mind from all the mummy movies I watched as a kid. It's like, well, the person who's warning them about the curse is obviously a guy in a fez. It's peanut butter and jelly. Two things just go together. I kept picturing him as, I don't know if you remember the DuckTales movie, um, but there's like a probably racist caricature yeah. of a guy, like, a, I don't even remember what animal he is, like a maybe literally a weasel or something. Um, but that takes place that has to do with a magic lamp. And there's a character from like, you know, the Middle East with a turban who has like a really high pitched voice. That's who I kept picturing Ahmed as. Uh, oh. So they see Ahmed. And I think because he has a ponytail, <clears throat> they break into a run and he starts following them and shouting and they can't understand what he's shouting. And then they run into a dead end and they're cornered and he slowly cl- closes in on them. What does he want? Uh, he claims to be there because he says, hey, Uncle Ben wants you. He's at the hotel. Let me take you there. And it made me think about how we were like told there were like PSAs and stuff when I was a kid about like, have a password with your family so that if some person who's not your family comes to pick you up, they, you know, you know that they're not just uh, have ill intent hmm yeah my uh, my wife actually did have a password with her her family uh, i don't think we ever did but um she told me no we didn't bother <laughs> yeah, it's like oh you're you're all left to your own devices you know uh, whatever we're gonna let nature take its course on this one <laughs> what if your password was password like that what has been the case for me in the past yeah. with some of my email accounts yeah would would anybody have guessed that back then in the same way they would have now. I don't know. What's the safe? What's the password? Uh, password? Ah, oh, damn it. They got it. Mom must have sent them. But it turns out that they are being kidnapped because the hotel, I don't know if I mentioned this already, the hotel is only a few blocks away from the museum, but they start walking in the wrong direction. And Ahmed says, oh, my car is this way. And they're like, that's sus. Why would we need to get into your car to go to the hotel that's like two blocks away? And Ahmed's like, um, because. And so they get in the car. Uh, Ahmed is not very good at kidnapping, so he doesn't even lock the door. So when they get to a stoplight, the two kids run out. 
and they run through a set which is basically described as looking like the mummy the 1999 version they even go out into a like there's a circle that they empty out into where there's a bunch of like fruit stands and vegetable stands and stuff <laughs> typical like if you're making a movie about egypt that's what you have fruit carts they escaped through the market exactly but they finally they find a cab and they ask to be taken to the <clears throat> Cairo Center Hotel. And the driver throws back his head and starts to laugh menacingly. And then he points across the street and he's like, yeah, that's the hotel right there. <laughs> so they finally get back to their hotel room and Uncle Ben bursts in, this time not dressed as a mummy. He okay. explains that um, those two workers that he had to go visit in the hospital, they're basically comatose. And so they tell him, hey, uh, that guy who works for you kidnapped us. Is that kind of weird? And Uncle Ben steps up to be the best adult in all of Goosebumps, maybe, by actually believing them. So then he has a debate with himself, like, well, I want to go to the pyramid and see if I can figure out what's going on. But I don't know if I should leave you alone in the hotel room again. But I also don't want to take you with me because that's dangerous. But then they do wind up going back to the pyramid with him. I don't, it's not really explained what he wants to find at the pyramid. Like, I don't know why he can't just stay in the hotel room with them until the saw blows over. But we need the plot to move along. But he actually does another smart thing. He gives them both beepers that track their location. They're like GPS beepers in case they all get separated. I give him a measure of goodwill, which, again, like much of R.L. Stein, I immediately take all that away because Gabe has to stop to tie his shoe again. And Uncle Ben is too busy arguing with Sari about something nondescript so they don't hear him say, hey, I'm stopping to tie my shoe. And in the span it takes him to tie his shoe, they're both completely gone and he's in total darkness. And he runs around until he falls through the stone floor into a giant camber. Nope. A giant chamber that is just crammed with mummies. There must be dozens of mummies in there, Jose. Let me tell you. Please do. Some of them are standing up. Some of them are lying down. Some of them have their arms held out in front of them like Frankenstein monsters. Why are they in all these crazy positions? He also discovers that the room contains mummy-making tools and a tar pit, which is still warm. Mm, I do remember the tar pit from reading the book. It was like a big set piece, that tar pit. Yeah, this is basically the only part of the entire book that I remembered. All the stuff about the kidnapping and the running around in the museum and stuff, didn't remember any of that. But unfortunately for Gabe, even though he has this high-tech beeper that will give Uncle Ben his location, it was smashed in the fall. (sighs) So now he's just alone in the darkness with all of these mummies and... Why does the floor seem like it's moving? Scorpions. Oh, no. He stumbles around, uh, apparently crushing a lot of them. And he's about to fall face first into the whole pile when a pair of hands grab his shoulders from behind. Who could it be? He panics, even though they just saved him because he thinks it's he describes the hand as strong and dry and bandaged. But then it turns out to be sorry. So I don't know. Moisturize, I guess. Sorry. (laughs) And she also got separated from Uncle Ben because uh, he (laughs) even though he should be on like high danger alert, he has not been keeping track of these kids at all. But fortunately, her beeper still works. So she turns it on. 
And who do they hear walking down the tunnel to come confront them but Ahmed. Oh, no. Ahmed starts his Bond villain monologue. He says, you have violated the sacred preparation chamber. chamber. Why can I not say chamber? The sacred preparation chamber of the priestess Kala, who does not seem to be an actual historical figure, because I looked that up, too. I think that's a creation of Stein's. Um, He explains that the two workers who wound up in the hospital, unable to speak, are there because he was threatening to boil them alive in the tar pit to make them aware of the fact that uh, they shouldn't be uh, disturbing the sanctity of this tomb. And because of the fact that he is a descendant of Kala, it is Ahmed's responsibility to make sure that such violators are punished by being mummified alive. Seems harsh. It is, and we find out that all of the mummies in this chamber were actually people who were punished by the curse, by being mummified alive. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if Stein would, like, again, I feel like as the books go on, the Goosebumps books, they start to become a lot tamer. So I don't know if he would have this reference to people being boiled alive in tar in later Goosebumps books. It would be more like, you know, I'm going to make you stay here forever, or something vague like that. Right. And when you think about it, this is somebody who's essentially, from the sound of it, just confessed to the fact that they are a serial killer. I know. I I am boiling these people alive and tearing their brains out and wrapping them up in bandages. And you just happen upon my cellar full of bodies of my victims. Does not happen in Revenge of the Lawn Gnomes, if if I remember correctly. Yeah, and it's also, it seems disingenuous if you're a murderer to be like, it's the curse. It's not, it's not a curse, it's you, you murdering people. So he creeps toward them with a dagger in his hand and a torch in his other hand. And then suddenly a rope ladder falls from the hole in the ceiling. And who should start descending but Uncle Ben. And then uh, Ahmed's like, oh, I'm going to knock you out with this torch. And he does. So anyway, Sari and Gabe are forced to climb into a giant mummy case, quote unquote, and they get the lid closed on them and they feel bugs crawling all over them. And there's another (laughs) Stein breaks up the tension by making another joke about Gabe's mummy costume from two years ago, which unraveled. Oh, the line is I wrote it down because it's funny and also stupid. Little did I know at that time that I'd soon have a mummy costume that would never unravel. They're freaking out. How are they going to get out of this pickle? And then they hear something scraping around inside the coffin with them. And they think, is there a mummy in here with us? No, it's Uncle Ben. He crawled in through an escape hatch that Egyptians, I guess, built into sarcophagi to give the souls an exit as they departed from the body. Um, but then he says that Ahmed has left the chamber and you're kind of like, well, why didn't you just open up the coffin then instead of climbing inside? So they all escape very, very slowly by crawling out through this tiny escape hatch that Uncle Ben just crawled into. And they start jogging for the tunnel, making, uh, running for their lives when suddenly they see an orange glow of a torch. Is it Ahmed? Yes, it is. And... He's like, all right, you know what? I'm not even going to mummify you anymore. I'm just going to throw you in the tar pits. Um, So he backs them up to the edge of the pit. And that's when Gabe remembers an important plot detail from earlier that's nestled up in his pocket called a summoner. 
he pulls the mummy hand out of his pocket and holds it above his head like the Statue of Liberty. That's uh, how it is described in the book. That's not my comparison. Oh, really? Wow. It is kind of a funny beat because Gabe is just holding this over his head and nothing's happening. And so he's like, "Mm, I just kind of feel like uh, the Statue of Liberty here. Awkward. (laughs) Um, Slowly and painfully, all of the mummies in the room start to shuffle to life. They advance toward the group. Ahmed throws his torch at one, like uh, Aragorn in Fellowship of the Ring, and it bursts into flames, but keeps approaching. And all of the mummies, I don't know why Ahmed doesn't just run at this point, because it's they're described as moving very slowly. But they manage to make it all the way over to Ahmed, and they lift him up over their head, and they're poised to toss him into the tar pit. And then Stein remembers, like, I guess I can't really do that even to a bad guy, because this is a book for kids. So he describes it as Gabe squeezes his eyes shut, not wanting to look. And then when he opens his eyes, he sees Ahmed, like, fleeing into the tunnel. And the mummies are just, like, back to normal, like nothing happened. And Uncle Ben says to Gabe, thanks for the helping hand. Freeze frame, credits roll. Yeah. (laughs) Just kidding. It's actually not the last line of the book. There's more. Because we need a twist. Oh, do you want to... Now that I've already described the entire book, um, do you want to guess what the twist maybe is? Uh, see, I, uh, this was something else I did in those videos where I would try to recall the twist because practically every book had one, even if it was just kind of a cheeky line. Um, and I don't think I was able to guess it then, and I'm not sure I'm able to guess it now, except maybe one of the mummies hitches a ride with him out <laughs> A pyramid? Like, hey, where's the party? I'm late for the summoning. Sorry. That's that's me. That's not you. But uh yeah, where are we going? Is there Bennigans around here? Is that what happens? <laughs> Bennigans, my goodness. What a, <laughs> Keep is it that up. even still around? <laughs> well, the granted this was like ninety two, ninety three. So I'm I think I'm on point. Yeah, when they close, what do they do with all that stuff they have, like, uh, you know, hanging around the ceiling in Venegans when they all close? Do they just storage war it or whatever? Yeah, I guess so. I think the twist that you described is the twist of, uh, not to uh, prefigure this, um, but I think that's the way One Day at Horrorlands ends, isn't it? With the yeah. monsters. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, but, it's, not like, it's not like Stein would you know, be above stealing from himself. So I thought perhaps. That yeah, that's true. Yeah. So what happens? Well, I'll tell you, it's the most spine tingling twist in all of Goosebumps history. They're at the room. Uh, they're at their hotel room eating more frosted flakes. Jabber jawing about the what a day they've had. Um, and then they all freeze and their jaws drop because there's a knock at the door. Could it in fact be? A mummy that followed them home? No, it's mom and dad. The end. Yay, then you freeze. <laughs> and then yep. you cut you cut to Tony the Tiger, and he's like, they're great, but he says it in Arabic. and In Arabic, yep. Wow. Okay, and that uh, is Goosebumps yeah. number five, The Curse of the Mummy's Tomb. That pretty much confirms my recollections of it being <laughs> very very boring and this was something that stein did i think to a certain degree with uh the first night of the living dummy book 
where you have this preconceived image of okay this is the this is the big bad this is the monster of the week we're going to be seeing here and then with night of the living dummy it's mr wood the entire time it's not even slappy who's the mm-hmm. dummy that's on the cover um they they like swapped it for the episode because i guess they realized well that was stupid what did <laughs> what did he do it that way um but same thing here like i and and I thought I remembered like oh it's one mummy it's like Khufu um, stumbling around and you know he's doing his thing, but it's all of Ahmed's murdered victims which I that's another revelation I can't get over that's that's wild yeah and then you kind of wonder like what happens to Ahmed because he just runs away so I don't know if he actually sees any justice or what sees the error of his ways yeah. I don't deal? think they cover that in the sequel either, as far as I remember. I feel like he came back. For, well, because Gabe came back. And I feel like he was beset by some other human villain. And that was like the, you know, what made these two books even more annoying. It's like it just repeated the formula. It's like we didn't get more mummy in Return of the Mummy. We got pretty much the same formula here. Very frustrating. Well, I will say my overall... Um analysis my review my opinion is that um i absolutely would have and was as far as i remember bored by this one as a kid but reading as as an adult uh first of all i think i kind of expect anything with the monster in it to not show the monster until the last you know like if you're watching a a ray harryhausen movie from the 50s or whatever like uh it conquered the world is that even a title it feels like that's a I think that's a Corman movie from AIP, which <laughs> I call, back, you know, uh, what is it? 20 million miles to Earth. Like you see the monster yeah. kind of baby adolescent stage for most of the movie. And it's just towards the end that he gets giant size and starts, you know, dancing on the Coliseum and stuff. Yeah. So I think that's kind of the expectation I had going into this. And um because of that it kind of helped me enjoy the book in terms of all of the character work that was going on and also i think i was again because of my low expectations because of some later goosebumps entries i was like weirdly impressed that it all seemed to have a certain like i feel like there are certain goosebumps books where when ara when uh, ahmed kidnaps them and that's like a whole 30 page sequence there would like that would not even be related to the larger story. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like it would just be a thing that happens to keep things happening. Right. Uh, and in this one, it's like he did actually have a plan, which was to like kidnap the kids and then like force Uncle Ben, like ransom him basically, like leave the pyramid um, and then you get your kids back or whatever. So I don't know. The fact that it actually felt like a real story with progressive events happening <laughs> like one domino knocks down the next one for the most part was like wow what a great book <laughs> well i think this was uh before we talked a little bit about this um previously that this was before things started getting pressed down on an assembly line and uh rl stein had and i'm sorry if this is a shock to anybody listening to this you know there there were ghostwriters employed to, at the very least, hash out the framework of each of the books, maybe even on a chapter-by-chapter chapter beat, like this is what happens, and then 
Robert Lawrence would come in and write the actual words. So yeah, I would say the early books you feel they're they're more consistent and cohesive, and you you feel that they were actually written uh, by somebody with with a plan in mind instead of kind of passing through several hands like being written by a committee basically. Yeah. So as an adult, I would give this one uh, I don't know a B plus. I would say. It doesn't have to go back into the bargain bin. We could put this one in the time capsule. All right. I like it. Time capsule it is. That's nice because we're we're talking from – are we talking from the past here? I'm not really sure where the location of <laughs> Look, exactly. I don't know. I said we'd be doing books from the future, so clearly yeah. I don't know what's temporally where we are. Yeah, we're in all places and no places at once, but very generous uh, review and very generous rating. Uh, but I will stick by your assessment and, and say that we'll go ahead and place this puppy in the time capsule. Generate. Um, is there anything about this book in particular or kind of um, to kind of wrap up, no pun intended, truly this time, um, kind of wrap up our discussion for goosebumps, at least for now? Um, as we said, we're we're going to try to err on the side of talking more about the little known creepy books from this era so that we're not getting too um caught up in the goosebumps uh industrial complex um but any any last parting thoughts on the series or else then you'd like to share with our listeners for now uh well i'm sorry i took so many notes about this book because <laughs> it took me forever to get through it when really it's like it's like um i listened to a podcast called uh, go bayside it's not active anymore but it's a saved by the bell podcast and they always do a summary at the beginning of the episode where the host says, like, can you just give like a two sentence description? And the the summaries always wind up going on for like five minutes just to get like the bare bones of the episode, because yeah. Saved by the Bell was this show where it was like at the end of the episode, nothing would have had actually happened. And yet, like, every single second of the show was, like, moving the plot forward. Like, so it's like things are constantly happening, and yet it all adds up to nothing happening. And I think that's kind of the challenge with Goosebumps books is, like, there's constantly stuff happening. But really, the the entire plot, if you really wanted to streamline it, is, like, well, they go into a pyramid, and then a guy tries to kill him, and then a mummy scares off the guy at the end. You know, I was just reading uh, an, an article in the Paris Review about Babysitter's Club, or uh, excuse me, it was actually about Animorphs, but it referred to Babysitter's Club and Goosebumps, and it just said how, you know, there were countless amounts of these books being pumped out on a monthly basis, and they were to us what, you know, essentially pulp magazines were for audiences in the 30s and 40s they were disposable literature to you know be read breathlessly and in volume and um even though we have these fond attachments to them and you know in in a very real way even though they're they were and are disposable literature they kind of built us up um literacy wise um but at the end of the day yeah you know it's there there's not much that happens but they have propulsive action because you know the idea is to get you from uh, the first page to the last page in this breathless motion uh, so that you can buy next month's book <laughs> and and read it in the same way. Yeah, and uh, my other major thought would be, I don't know if I have that many, like, 
quote, kind things to say about R.L. Stein as a writer, even though I love his books. It's like such a weird dynamic where I'm like, these are all kind of badly written, but also I have such affection for them in part because of the annoying stuff. Uh, but there's a certain perception that I have of Goosebumps of like every chapter is a fake out scare uh, cliffhanger. And in this particular case, there were only like two or three that were actual fake outs and they sort of made sense for the characters as opposed to like I saw, you know, a shadow from a tree branch and thought it was a human being coming to murder me or whatever. Yeah, I think this was early enough in the series before that trope started getting beaten uh, mercilessly into the ground. I, I feel like my go-to for that, um, and I feel like somebody else referred to this as like oh, one of the most annoying fake-outs ever. It might have been um, from the blogger, from the blogger Beware site. Um, but it was from the Barking Ghost, and it's like in the first chapter where the hero goes outside in the middle of the night because he's hearing eerie sounds, and, oh my god, I'm going to be attacked by a snake, and it was the garden hose. Yeah, I know. I'm like, I'm thinking of all these ones that I want to talk about, and I'm like, well, what if we cover that book later? But you yeah. know what? Who cares? I will say the most ridiculous one that I remember is from a book that is fairly early on in the series, uh, Be Careful What You Wish For, where the girl shouts at her little brother, I wish you were a foot tall or something. And then her brother comes running around the side of the house and he's actually a foot tall. Oh, no, wait, it's our dog. Oh, my God. Wow. I remember very little from that book. I said it in my in the YouTube video that I did. I barely remember a thing. And I'm really glad I didn't remember that until you just reminded me because I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do with myself now that I have that in my head for the next few years well, hopefully by the time we actually get around to covering it you will have forgotten it and can be well, delighted by it all over again i hope we don't get there like i said there are so many other series so many other books um that are either on my shelves or that uh eric and i have fallen into this habit i know we didn't necessarily introduce the, the whole concept behind the show adequately it's our first episode give us a break folks um but we've kind of fallen into this habit now within these last few years of collecting all this stuff from our childhood so i have all this stuff that i'm really excited to talk about i truly hope that goosebumps doesn't rob too much of that time away uh from this other stuff there are other rl stein related projects that i'd love to talk about that aren't necessarily goosebumps but we're putting the cart before the horse here i don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves we got other episodes to discuss and and publish uh in the weeks and hopefully years to come yep <laughs> yeah some of the rl i remember uh i think it was called the nightmare room he had like a an anthology of short stories yes. like i don't know probably while the third or fourth goosebumps series was going on that i remember actually being like quality so it's i'm excited to get to that stuff too that's exactly what I was referring to, actually, because, uh, yeah, but both those collections, there's the Nightmare Room and the, oh, excuse me, the, I have them right here in front of me. It's the Nightmare Hour. The Nightmare Room was the series that he had um, that was adapted okay. to TV later. Yeah, the Nightmare <laughs> Hour and the Haunting Hour. Those are really two solid collections. I have a softer spot for the Nightmare Hour. Um, but yeah, I would love to talk about that collection in a future episode because it's it does have some quality stories in there that I still very, very fondly remember. So if 
you enjoyed this episode, listener. If you're looking forward to more of the same, please, please keep us uh, in your hearts and your minds. Follow us. Well, no, you can't really follow us because we're not on social yet, but go to our website, blackmagictreehouse.com. If you have something to say about Curse of the Mummy's Tomb or any of the Goosebumps or any of this other creepy stuff, reach out to us through email, blackmagictreehousepod at gmail.com. And, uh, yeah, we would love to hear from you. We're really excited to see where all this goes. Thank you for this beautiful first episode, Eric. Uh, You're welcome. (laughs) I hope it's releasable because I don't want to summarize this book again later. But also I know it took about twice as long as we want our podcast to be. So growing pains, baby, we're going to get we're going to get this down. Don't you worry. And as far as I'm concerned, this is the official first episode and we will make it so. So be sure to come back and join us up here in our cold, lonely treehouse another time. Won't you, dear listener? Yeah, bring peanut butter sandwiches. That's the best kind. (laughs) Have a great night, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye.